The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. If you'll take your copies of God's Word and turn with me to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. And join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for these moments in your Word. Thank you for the privilege to look at life through the Word of God. We thank you for your word whereby we see life and whereby we see the Son of glory, Christ Jesus, our creator, redeemer, and sustainer. And now we can look at all of the categories of life, not through the world's perspective, but through biblical perspective. So would you so guide us in this, uh, in this study that we do now in Jesus' name? Amen. <clears throat> if you'll keep that text in front of you, and let me kind of set our stage as we move through a either two or three sermon uh, focus uh, in this matter of a biblical theology or a biblical doctrine or a biblical clarity or biblical perspective on singleness, not looking to the psychology of the age or the philosophies of the age. But looking to God's Word to establish that. But let's back up and see where we've been. This has been a personal conviction that I have had uh, as as we've tried to address these issues. um, Because we live in this culture, let me say uh, what I've shared before, a culture of uh, insanity, a culture of absurdity, a culture of immorality, a culture of... Um, lethality, all rooted in profitability. In other words, you make a lot of money on this cultural chaos, upon this culture of um, insanity, absurdity, immorality, and lethality. And uh, so we want to bring some clarity to it by looking from God's Word. And there are some certain convictions that I'm going to be sharing with you that are important to affirm. But as as we've done this, what I've said is let's go to one of the, the most attacked book in the Bible uh, by the world and by liberalism and to some degree progressivism, and that is the book of Genesis. It is either ignored, it is either isolated, or it is either discounted um, in in the realm of even the evangelical church today, and many times avoided. Yet all of the crucial issues of a framework for the foundation of life, which is why I've called it God's blueprint, because in the book of Genesis are established foundational sanctities. 
such as the sanctity of marriage, the sanctity of family, the sanctity of creation, the sanctity of divine revelation, the sanctity of God, the sanctity of the Sabbath, all of those, the sanctity of work, the sanctity of property, all of that is built and initiated out of the book of Genesis and then elucidated throughout the whole counsel of God in his word. So we have taken on a number of those, and one of the sanctities that we have been looking at is the sanctity of gender, that God made man male and female. God made man male and female, and while every one of us bear the image of God male and female, there is something unique about God's image being profoundly displayed by male and female in this world. In other words, male is, is a, made in the image of God, female is made in the image of God, but male and female is that which God said was required to give a full expression of his image in this world through those who have been made in his image, humanity, male and female, and the two genders of male and female. And so that's where we started. Uh, we don't have in the Bible any notion of Facebook's 59 choices of gender or, or whatever it might be in this culture of insanity and absurdity. You have no concept that medicine would fabricate a profitable industry that is uh, that claims gender reassignment where all it actually does is bodily surgical mutilation and chemical machinations and uh, so why it, why are those things happening in our culture as it stands in rebellion against God well it's important that you and I uh, understand on all of these issues that are creating this culture of insanity, absurdity, immorality, and lethality, it's important we come at it from a biblical world and life view. And so uh, we have not only established the sanctity of gender, and we do so carefully. We understand that in a fallen world, there is such a phenomena as gender dysphoria, people working through what does it mean to be male and female in this world. We certainly understand that. And we certainly understand the dynamics of how the sin nature draws people away into sexual anarchy and sexual immorality. We understand all of that. But what we want to do is to give a biblical worldview on where all of this comes from and where all of this should, how all of this should be understood and where do the distortions come from and what is the solution to the distortions of man's rebellion. And that, of course, is the gospel solutions that Christ has established. So what I've done to this point in this matter of gender is say there is creation, masculinity, and femininity. In other words, God made man, male and female, in the act of creation to properly, fully image God in this world. Male and female, both are image bearers, but it is the heterosexual dynamic and the heterosexual existence of male and female that gives the full expression of God's glory through his creation. And so 
there is, there is thus a creation masculinity, a creation femininity. As God made man to protect, to provide, and to produce. As he gives man his creation mandate. Subdue the earth, be fruitful and multiply, and rule over the creation. He is to, um, he is to provide, he is to protect, he is to tend, he is to defend, and he is to reproduce. And yet man cannot do that alone. To accomplish that, God says it's not good for the man to be alone. Therefore, to accomplish that, he makes the woman from his side to come alongside of him so that the two from equality, bearing God's image, now as one, are able to accomplish the creation mandate together in serving the Lord. And thus the woman comes along as the helper completer, and the man is there as the provider, protector, and to um, to provide and to protect, and the woman to complete and to help and to nurture, and, and all of those created dynamics of biblical, ma- of creation masculinity and femininity. Well, we hear a lot today about toxic masculinity and not so much, but also in some quarters, toxic, toxic femininity. And we don't deny that. What we deny is the world's philosophy that masculinity is toxic. That's what we deny. We, but we don't deny there's a toxic masculinity. You find it in the, in Genesis chapter three, as Adam abandons and uh, abandons his responsibility to properly provide and protect for his wife under the temptation of Satan. And then, of course, you find the woman's autonomy being established. And so then comes the curse. And this is toxic masculinity. The man, uh, And this is toxic femininity. Toxic femininity is indicated in the curse from sin when it says, Her desire shall be for her husband. Now, that doesn't mean a longing looking at her husband and saying, oh, it is a, it, it's not the way the word is used. You find the word in Genesis 3, Genesis 4. You also find it in the Song of Solomon. And the word desire, it's actually given as a word picture of when, when God tells Adam that Satan is crouching like a lion. And you are its prey. Its desire is for you. The curse of sin upon the woman is a predatorial nature of the man's position in humanity. It is a predatorial curse of sin that her desire is for her husband to deny his role and to assume his role in humanity and the very categories of life in humanity. And what is the man's response? It says in the next verse that he shall rule over you. And the key there, again, is found in the Greek word, which is, I mean, the Hebrew word, which is, can be and rightly would be translated in noun form, tyrant. So if you take the noun form tyrant and you translate it, rule as a tyrant, then you could, then you would rightly have the verb, and I think it's a better translation. He shall tyrannize you. So man, toxic masculinity, either isolates, ignores, or intimidates by the virtue of the creation 
dynamic of, human, of men and how God made man, that that creation and uh, biological makeup is used to either ignore, to isolate, or intimidate the woman who wants his position. And that is toxic and um, masculinity and toxic femininity. Now, the gospel comes. And when the gospel comes, it does a redeeming work, not only to save men and women, but to begin to change men and women. So now the sin nature can be addressed. And the sin nature can be addressed as original sin. The power is broken and actual sins can be put to death. And so the picture of the redeemed man in biblical masculinity, what we would call Christian manhood, and biblical femininity, which we would call Christian womanhood, is the man is called to be strong and courageous in his responsibilities of life. And the woman, and, and he is also called to be sensitive and compassionate in the relationships of life. Strong and courageous to embrace the responsibilities of life. Sensitive and compassionate to engage in the relationships of life. That's where we get the Western civilization denominator of men, gentle men. Or as you look to the Savior, the Savior who is both lion-hearted and lamb-like. Here is both of those dynamics. And the woman then is restored to being the helper completer with her nurturing gifts. And she brings order into the relationships of life and nurture. Nurture and order into the relationships of life. Now, you would say to me, Harry, I think she brings not only order, but you're missing a great alliteration opportunity. She brings ardor uh, into life. Well, I know I've got a wife that's got ardor and she's got order, so you're not going to get any argument from me. But I want to reserve that because when we get in our series on Christian manhood and womanhood in the arena of marriage, one of the points I want to bring out is the man functioning as a biblical with biblical masculinity and Christian manhood actually creates the environment of love in the home. And he, not that the wife doesn't participate, this is not either or, this, uh, but he leads the way and the woman actually brings order in her relationship with her husband. That then is multiplied in the relationships of children to their parents and in relationships outside of the home. But that's something yet to come. What I want to do now is to take, you take a look at creation and biblical masculinity and femininity. You see toxic masculinity and femininity as a result of the fall. And then you see redemptive biblical masculinity and femininity by virtue of redemption. And that then brings by God's grace, common grace in society and redeeming grace in his people. That then brings the testimony of that work of grace in relationships in the categories of life. Now, where do men and women as Christians with Christian manhood and Christian womanhood, where do they function in the categories and spheres of life? Well, it's my proposal to take some weeks with you and talk about how Christian men embracing Christian manhood, not perfectly, but intentionally by God's grace, and Christian women embracing Christian womanhood, not perfectly, but intentionally by God's grace. What does that look like in singleness? What does that look like 
in marriage? What does that look like in the family and parenting? What does that look like in the church? What does that look like in the world? What does that look like when we show up in those places? All of those deserve series of 5, 10, 12 sermons, but I'm not going to do that. But I'm not going to just do one sermon. I'm right now looking at two on singleness. With a spoiler alert, it could flow into three. But I promise it won't go beyond three. And so I want to look at the theology or doctrine of singleness in order to understand how Christian manhood and womanhood functions during the period of life or the calling of life into singleness. And um, then I want to do the same thing for marriage and family and parenting and the church and in the world. If you'll just one more time bear with me one more introductory remark. And it kind of calls on this morning that I believe the key to life Life practice that honors the Lord is faithful biblical doctrine, first of all. So I am not going to jump into a psychology of singleness or a philosophy of singleness. I want to first take steps in a theology of singleness, a doctrinal understanding from God's word in singleness. Now, again... To get all my cards on the table, of course, that's not a good illustration for a preacher. Let me come up with another one there. But to get everything in front of you, honestly, most of this theology of singleness is going to be in the next sermon. But what I'm about to give now is not only crucial for singleness, but it will be crucial for our understanding of marriage and the relationships there and our understanding of our relationships in the family and parenting and our understanding of our relationships in the church. I want to give you five things tonight that I think are crucial to establish a theology of anything. It's just absolutely crucial. We have to have a renewed mind to understand these things. And what is it that we need to have foundationally to understand and embrace this renewed mind? We'll start into it with singleness by implication tonight, but this actually sets up what we're going to do in every single one of these short little sermon series on these particular categories where Christian manhood and Christian womanhood begin to function. And that, uh, so let me get into that with you by taking you to Psalm 103. One of my favorite Psalms, I love it because it guides me in worship. Look at Psalm 103 and verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Don't forget. Let me flip it around the way we would normally say it. Do not forget his benefits. We are, we are beneficiaries of his benefactory blessings of grace. What are those? He forgives us of our iniquity. He heals our diseases physically and spiritually. Now, he doesn't necessarily deal with all of our sins to perfection now. No, we're going to have, that's called sanctification, progressive sanctification. But he has dealt with our sins by the blood and righteousness of Jesus. That's called definitive sanctification or justification. 
And then he heals our bodies. He restores our bodies in this world. But ultimately, it's appointed once to die. And that fully, that will be fully fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth with our perfect body, which will be like unto the transformed, resurrected body of Jesus. Look what else he does. He redeems your life from the pit. Translate. You're not in hell right now. And there's only one reason. God's grace. Who brought that judgment upon his son for you. He redeems us from the pit. He crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies us with good. So that your youth is renewed. Like the eagles. In other words, our gospel is not a gospel of cope. It's a gospel of hope. And our hope is always renewed. Down to old age and hoary heads. And he is this one that does all of these great and glorious things. He satisfies you with good. You know how we, we do that, don't we? We'll greet one another. Hey, God's good. And what's the, what's the answer back? All the time. Then comes back all the time. God's good. God is good. Now he doesn't say everything's good in a fallen world, but he's good in the midst of this fallen world to his people. Now you got to file everything I just said away because it's coming back to you in these five principles. But I want one more passage to read from Psalm 103. Would you now go with me to Psalm 103 and over um, and go with me uh, over to verse 13. This God whom we've been speaking of as a father, he's your father. As a father, verse 13, as a father, he shows compassion to his children. So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field, for the wind passes over it and it's gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne. He's sovereign in the heavens and his kingdom Rules over all. Now, my dear friends, I believe this is crucial, not only for my single brothers and sisters who many times in the pain of singleness or the disappointments that surround it or the questions that come to it. Does God really care about me? And does God really love me? And why doesn't he do something about this? How many times in a marriage? Of course, we've solved it in our society. We have embraced the horrific, the horrific legal remedy of no-fault divorce. 
But for believers, we don't, even though that's legal, we don't embrace it. We know there's only two biblical grounds. And those aren't remedies and solutions. They're protection devices. But but we live in a society where, hey, my husband, my wife isn't meeting my needs. And if God really loved me, in fact, God will understand me walking away with this. I don't know why he's left him in my life anyway. It's all about me, isn't it? The culture of self and autonomy shows itself in marriage, shows itself in parenting. In all of these categories, in the church, in parenting, in family, in marriage, all of them, we have got to have a theology that addresses the brokenness of a broken, sin-broken world. And that's why we go to that first. And whenever you start with a perspective, we need not a psychology and a philosophy on these issues. We need a theology of singleness, of marriage, of family, of parenting, of the church. And how does a Christian man or woman function in those categories with that theology guiding us? And that's where we, that's what we are facing. So I want to give you five things about the theology of all of these, but I'm going to be cognizant that I'm, I'm on the precipice of this couple of sermons on singleness and a theology of singleness. So no matter which one of these categories, but certainly in singleness, we have to understand that we, our first step is to, de- is to develop a theology of life in the context of those categories and spheres of life. Whatever they are, including singleness, we need a theology of singleness. That means we need an understanding of God's word, of God. That means we need an understanding of God's word. You cannot have a theology of God, a, a clear, accurate theology of God without a right theology of God's word. It's impossible. Our God is not our, is not our, the doctrine of God does not come from our imagination. It doesn't come from our invention. It comes from divine revelation. And that God, that God's word that he has given to us because that God is light and his nature is to reveal himself. Now that he reveals himself as one God in three persons, creator, redeemer, sustainer, and consummator. Once we see all of that, now we can begin to look at the issue of singleness. That God is our hope. And the God in whom we hope is the God who is revealed in his word. I had a young uh, man come up to me not long ago. And he said, Pastor, I've got some questions. And I said, wonderful. He said, I'm hoping you have some answers. I said, well, I hope so also. And he said to me, he said, but I want to encourage you. Don't, don't get, uh, don't get too uh, uptight because these aren't theological questions. I said, what? He said, they're not theological questions. And I said, then they are insane questions. Or they are no questions. All of life is theology. Everything. We don't have, as the world proposes, 
a sacred secular. Here's your sacred life, Christians. We're going to give it to you on Sundays in that building. Everything else is secular. We say no to that. (laughs) No, our relationship with God is not in the private compartments of a building called a church or within the walls of our home. Our relationship with God is in the public square. Our relationship with God encompasses everything. As Kuiper so clearly said and rightly said, there is not one square inch of creation. There is not one event in all of humanity that God does not say, that's mine. He is sovereign of all, over all, and in all. That's one of the blessings of being saved is you say no to the sacred secular dichotomy. You say yes to the singularity that God is the originator of my life, the redeemer of my life, the sustainer of my life. He is my life and my life is his. All of life is theology. And that includes marriage. That includes singleness. That includes parenting. That includes everything. Let me be practical. When we get to parenting, we're not going to buy Benjamin Spock's book that ruined an entire generation. We're going to go to Proverbs. We're going to go to Ephesians, Colossians, and Hebrews. God is the one through his word who gives us our way of life by telling us who he is. Our theology of God that comes from God's word. Now you can inaccurately interpret God's word and present a false God. But rightly handling God's word we can we can embrace a true doctrine of God. If some of you are familiar with our church's standards, the Westminster Confession of Faith, you're probably familiar with something that I confess surprised me in my early days of a Christian, and I re- wrestled with the sovereignty of God and election and predestination, and then the Reformed faith, and then I found out, well, I guess I'm one of those guys that's believing in this thing called the Westminster Confession of Faith as a distillation of faithful, a faithful distillation of biblical doctrine. Not inerrant, only the Bible is inerrant, but a faithful distillation. And then I went and took a look at it, and the first chapter was Scripture. The next chapter was God. The doctrine of Scripture, chapter 1. The doctrine of God, chapter 2. Now, in my early baby Christian life, what do you think I was thinking? Why do you start with the Bible? Why don't you start with God? Well... As I read chapter 1, I found out why you start with the Bible. Not because the Bible is God. We're not bibliolaters. But you can't know God without the Bible. You can't know God until he lights the lamp. You're just opening confession. Lord, light up our life. Be a lamp to our feet. Where's the lamp? It's the Word of God. 
God's word is that special revelation of God that guides us in all of life. That includes baptism and Lord's Supper and and uh, prayer and singleness and marriage and parenting. God gives us the channel markers, the framework, the principles, the precepts. Secondly, that word is, please remember these three things. God's word is inerrant. God's word is infallible. And God's word is authoritative. So our second principle is the word of God that reveals the God of the word, whereby we build our theology of singleness and marriage and everything else. That word is inerrant. It is absolutely trustworthy. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't challenging places in terms of what does this mean and that mean and why is this number here and the parallel text is a different number. All of those things have to be worked through. But here's what we start with. Our God makes no errors. Let every man be a liar. God speaks the truth. So if this is God's word and it's true, then there is an answer from God's word about that challenging text. And that's what we begin to study and look for. Number three, principle number three is the, the, perspic- the perspicuous nature of the, of the scripture. So let me just, before we uh, get too far afield on that, and that doesn't mean the scripture sweats. That's not what it means. It, that's the word that means clear. It's clear. The Bible is not opaque. The Bible is not clouded. The Bible is clear on all of the essentials of the faith. The Bible is clear on the primary doctrines whereby clarity comes to the secondary doctrines and to the tertiary doctrines. It is clear in all that we need to understand and it is something that's not, and not every passage is this, is, is as clear as every other passage. Y'all remember, we won't turn there just because I want to be timely tonight. But, um, um, do y'all remember when Peter is talking, um, about the, uh, the infallibility, the inerrancy of God's word that God has revealed and he says that God's word came from God through holy men who were carried along. That's the word for ferried. They were ferried like a ferry boat. They were ferried by the Holy Spirit. So God used the human authors in all of their humanity, but he carried them so that he is the author through the 40 plus authors. And then he goes on to say that all of the scripture is affirmed as true. As in the writings of our brother Paul. So in other words, he puts Paul's epistles on the same level as Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. Then he makes this interesting statement. As our brother Paul, who writes of things hard to understand, and some distort them, and to take advantage of that hard to understand, to distort them, to lead others astray. 
You see, I'm not saying that all of Scripture is clear. I'm saying all that the clarity of Scripture is all that we need in order to understand the challenging text of Scripture. Man, the sovereignty of God and the free moral agency of man is not an easy deal. Understanding the sacraments as signs and seals of the covenant and who are the right subjects of them, that's not an easy deal. Um, the, doctor, the doctrine of God, one God in three persons and saying no to tritheism and saying no to uh, Arianism and modalism. I mean, that's not easy and still maintain biblical faithful truth. Because every time you come to a doctrine of Scripture, it comes from God. And God is what? Supernatural. And we are what? Let's put it this way. We're not supernatural. And God is supra-rational. And at best, we are sinfully rational. So every time we come to a doctrine that God's revealed, we're like Paul. God, you're too much. How in the world can I understand these things? You don't get counselors. You need to teach us and counsel us. God's word is gloriously supra-rational, never irrational. God's word is supra-logical, but never illogical. God's word can be rationally communicated, but God's word can never be fully comprehended by us. We can know God's word accurately and communicate it accurately, but we can never know it exhaustively or communicate it exhaustively. That's why you get to be a student of God's word for eternity. You'll never get to the bottom of it. As our God is glorious and beyond us, infinite, eternal, in his being, wisdom, holiness, justice, goodness, and power. Number four. Therefore, when we use God's word, we believe it's inerrant. We believe it's unbreakable. It's infallible. In fact, it's God's word that breaks the heart. God's word is not only the bomb of Gilead. God's word is also the hammer that breaks the rock. And God's word is the rock that the speculations and rebellion of humanity and culture will be broken upon that rock. Those speculations and rebellions of these cultural acts of insanity, absurdity, will not break this rock. This rock will break them. They will break as they crash upon this rock. Yet this, this Bible that we have, while it has clarity, has challenging doctrines and challenging parts of the text. So how do you handle that as you build your theology? I mean, let's get started on singleness. Let me anticipate next week. You don't find singleness in Genesis 1 and 2. It doesn't show up until Genesis 3 and 4. So how do we handle that dynamic, that challenging reality? Then you find Paul's application of redemption 
to singleness in terms of calling and providence and trust and sanctification. All of those things require us that when we come to difficult texts, we don't dismiss them. We don't avoid the challenges. When we find something in Kings and repeated in Chronicles, but it's not quite the same. We don't just set it aside or avoid it. Nor do we simply resort to harmonization. No, we go all the way down to who's writing, why he's writing. We go into exegesis. That's the term that you so graciously support me to do day after day. Dig in. What is the text saying historically, grammatically, doctrinally, theologically, and turn it into a homiletic presentation of a sermon? And when you get to those difficult texts, what do you do? All right, here's your, this is a 50 cent term, all right? Why don't you use it, get it, and use it every once in a while to impress people from a sanctified theological perspective, okay? Here's what it's called. Analogia de fide. It's Latin for the analogy of faith. By faith, we believe the Bible is what? The Word of God. By faith, we believe it's what? Inerrant. By faith, we believe it's what? Infallible. By faith, we believe it is authoritative, our only rule of faith and practice. By faith, we believe that all that is essential is clear. Well, what about those texts that challenge us? Then we do the analogy of faith. We take what we believe from God's Word about God's Word because we didn't believe until God's Word gave us faith. Faith comes by the Word of God. And now what do we believe? Now that we believe because of the work of the Word of God in the hands of the Spirit of God, what do we believe by faith about the Word? Inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and, and, uh, clear? Well, here's a passage that's not clear. Well, we don't want to distort it. So what do we do? Here's what we do. Knowing that God cannot contradict himself, we go to the clear passages to understand the not-so-clear passages. We go to the clear passages. Why? What does this say? Well, whatever this difficult text is saying, it cannot contradict this. So now I've got a starting point. I compare it gently, fearfully, and with trepidation to the few moments that I stayed awake in geometry. And we were given problems. Algebra also, but geometry is where I remember it. We were given problems, and then Coach Reed, that's right, one of my coaches actually was my geometry teacher, maybe part of the problem. He would give us... The axioms. If you want to solve what's not clear, a problem, you got to apply the axioms rightly. Well, that's what we do. We pray, we call upon the Spirit, and we go to the clear text in order to address the difficult text. We'll be doing that in the doctrine of singleness. We'll be doing that in marriage. We'll be doing that in parenting. How does God give us a promise, I'll be a God to us and to our children, yet some of our children are not converted? What does the Bible tell, what does the Bible tell us in these moments? 
So our fourth principle to develop this theology is the analogy, uh, the um, um, analog, analogia de fide. And then number five, and this one's so important today. Liberalism attacked, attacked the inerrancy of Scripture. Progressivism, liberalism in the mainline Protestant church attacked the inerrancy of Scripture and any doctrine that was supernatural in order to appease the modern mind of the Enlightenment, whereby reason replaced revelation. But in progressivism, that's in, it's making its inroads into the evangelical church, the attack is not on inerrancy. Why? Because progressives don't feel any need for integrity. They just don't feel a need for it. In order to promote what they're believing, even if it's error, they're willing to compromise with truth for a time being. I mean, if we have to leave those things in the confession to get what we want, okay, we can leave them in. I mean, we'll leave that chapter in on qualified male ordination. Uh, we'll leave that chapter in on this or that or whatever it is because we've got bigger fish to fry. And it's okay to compromise with truth in my promotion of error. But in biblical Christianity, we're not, we don't have that luxury. In fact, we see that as... Um, as, as a as theological suicide. For the success of truth, we can't compromise with error. Now, we've got enough sense to understand the difference between primary, secondary, and, and, uh, the, and um, tertiary doctrines. And we've got enough sense to understand nobody is perfect in their theological uh, uh, affirmations. And we've got enough sense to know uh, that everyone's in progress on these matters if they are serious about their theology. And we've got enough sense as we work through these issues that some things are more important than other things. But what we can't do is we can't knowingly compromise with error. We understand the difference between theological error and apostasy. We understand the difference between theologically falling down and theologically falling away. We understand that. But we can't knowingly compromise with theological error. Because you can make primary errors of interpretation when you accept secondary errors of doctrine through those primary errors. Then they'll be used against primary doctrine. So we not only have to embrace the inerrancy of the word, we have to embrace the sufficiency of the word. To reveal who our God is as creator, redeemer, and sustainer. Let me say it again. This is crucial. We believe in the sufficiency of God's word to reveal the sufficiency of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as our creator, redeemer, and sustainer. Because we're in a broken world and it's not going to make sense all the time. And I'm going to hurt in this broken world. And I'm going to be challenged in this broken world. And I have to have an anchor for my soul. And the anchor is the Almighty. And I know Him through His Word. And I know Him by His Word. And what I just learned 
is the Almighty, is my Father. And He knows me. He knows my frame of dust and frailty. He has redeemed me. So the God that I'm going to trust in singleness, marriage, and family is a God who is my heavenly Father. He knows me exhaustively, accurately, intimately, personally, and lovingly. His Son created me. How many times did the Father How many times did the Son of God as Son of Man in the wilderness in His humanity say, How long will the Father leave me here? How long, when will the Father lead me out of here? He led me in here. He was led by the Spirit. When will He lead me out of here? Or on the cross as the wrath of his father falls on him as he becomes us and bears our sin. Yet he would know, I'm his son in whom he is well pleased. It is this God who is his father revealed in the scripture that sustains him. Let me give you a second thing. These are just some applications to take away to start us next week. Let me give you a second thing. Our Heavenly Father loves us and has a purpose for us. Our Father is self-governed by two non-negotiables in our life. Number one, everything in our life will ultimately be for his glory. Number two, everything in our life will ultimately work out for our eternal good. Those are two non-negotiables. Everything in our life will ultimately redound to the glory of God. And everything in our life will ultimately work out, not for our immediate good, but will work together for our eternal good. Thirdly, a third takeaway is that God knows your eternal good and is unalterably committed to securing it for you Because you belong to his son. And he finishes every good work that he begins. Single, married, difficult marriage, whatever it is. God knows how you will glorify him. God knows. And by the way, we wouldn't always choose to glorify him. Remember when he told Peter, if you knew how you were going to glorify me in your death, you wouldn't choose it. God knows how he's going to be glorified in us and how our eternal good is going to be secured as he works on us and through us and in us. 
And number four, take away. Our God can do what he promises to do for us, in us, and through us. Our God has promised that everything will work in our lives for his glory. And our God has promised that all things work together for our eternal good in that glory. And our God can deliver. He is faithful. He is the Almighty. He is able to do for us what He has promised to do on us, in us, and through us. Fifthly, finally, the reliability of God's Word tells us that God's power is, God's power is unmatched. And his sovereignty unchallenged. I mean, his, his sovereignty unstoppable. When it's challenged. God's word is reliable. God's sovereignty is, is assured in accomplishing all of his purposes. And God's grace is greater than sin. And we can live in that confidence before the Lord. Our God knows us. He is our Father. He knows us exhaustively, accurately, personally, lovingly, and irresistibly. In every category that we're going to study, this is the foundation from which the theology is going to be built. Harry, how do we know this? Well, I've already mentioned it. The reason I know this is true is because you're saved from your sins. There's no other explanation for you to be redeemed than God's sovereign, irresistible grace. He didn't need you. He just loved you. Irresistibly, unstoppably, resolutely. His grace was sufficient. His power unstoppable. I've got another evidence. Not only are you saved, you're not in hell now. The only reason we're not in hell now is because this God has chosen to love us with all of his power and sovereign rights. And he has saved us always and ultimately Unto his glory. How did he do those two things? How did he save us? How did we miss hell and are assured of heaven? His son. His son knew me gave. And when I'm thinking about my, uh, the spouse I want, the children what I want to happen, all of those things, they have real solid heart desires and passions and pain. And all of the dynamics. But what I flee to. If God be for us. Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son. But freely gave him up for us all. How will he not also freely give us all things? Not all things I want necessarily. But all that I need. For his glory. 
and my eternal good. How will he not also with us freely, and how will he not also give us all those things? He gave his son who died, yes, rather who is raised, who is right now at the right hand of the father interceding and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Those are our underpinnings. Now we'll dive into that theology of singleness next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the moments we could be together in your word. Thank you for my brothers and sisters, the privilege to serve you with them. Thank you that as married and single, older, younger, male, female, we are yours. You are ours. We know you from your word. You know us in and through your spirit and that word. And you know us to the depths of our souls, our hearts, our hopes, our hurts. And you are enough. Now teach us how you meet us. How you save us. How you sustain us. For your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reeder, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.